I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Pharmaceuticals earlier this week won a controversial U.S. Food and Drug Administration approval for Addy, the first drug approved in the United States to treat female sexual dysfunction. Following the news, Valiant Pharmaceuticals said it would acquire Sprout for $1 billion. We spoke to filmmaker Liz Canner, director of the documentary Orgasm Inc., about Addy, the drug industry's longstanding pursuit of a female Viagra, and why its approval is troubling to many people. Liz, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Danny. We're going to talk about Addy, also known as Philbinserin, Sprout Pharmaceuticals Drug to Increase Sexual Desire in Women, which just won approval from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration this week. It's a controversial approval with the FDA, long criticized by some advocates for not approving drugs to address sexual dysfunction in women, and others saying this is an example of the drug industry making a drug to treat a non-existent disease where the risk far outstripped the rewards. We're, we're going to talk about the history of getting drugs approved in this area and what led to this moment, but perhaps you can begin with your perspective on how significant this approval is and, and what it means. Well, I think it's significant in the sense that this is a drug that in 18 months will probably be marketed quite heavily. Um, And it's the first drug to be approved for low desire in women. And because of that, and then because sexuality is something that we have not been taught very much about, there's a good chance that the advertising and marketing could deceive many women into taking something that they don't need that could potentially harm them. Um, so I think in terms of women's health um, and well-being, this is a, a, a time of um, unfortunate uh, change, and especially around sexuality. Well, there's this great impulse in the media to refer to this as a female Viagra, but there is a significant difference between sexual dysfunction in men and sexual dysfunction in women. By and large, Viagra and drugs like it are treating a physiological problem of blood flow. This has been tried in women but failed. Addy affects neurotransmitters in the brain. What do we know about so-called female sexual dysfunction? So female sexual dysfunction is pretty much of a catch-all phrase that came about in the late 90s. Um, When Viagra was such a blockbuster drug for Pfizer, they basically turned to women and said there's got to be a bigger market here, and they started testing Viagra on women. Um, And that was for arousal problems. When Viagra failed to work, um, other drug companies also got into the race, and they presented other potential uh, sexual enhancing products for what they called female sexual dysfunction. Things like nose sprays and creams. And I was working for a drug company at that time that was developing an an orgasm gel that was going to 
you know, increase arousal. Um, and female sexual dysfunction is basically a catch-all disease that one would even question whether it is a disease um, for most women, but that basically includes things like low desire, um, arousal problems, inorgasmia, pain problems. So that's sort of like the umbrella. And then underneath that come these disorders and they have their own specific names. So ADDI is to treat um, hypoactive sexual desire disorder um, or, you know, low libido, basically. Well, there's some question as to how big a problem this actually is. And there's been some evidence in the past that efforts to characterize it have been greatly exaggerated. What do we know about the actual size of the problem? Well, you know, I think that we don't even know what the problem is, right? I mean, in terms of low desire, there is nothing that says in any medical handbook or diagnostic manual how many desirable, you know, desirous thoughts a woman is supposed to have. It's not like you're supposed to, you know, think I want to have sex 30 times a day or, you know, anything like that. This is a completely fabricated kind of concept. Not to say that some women don't feel that their desire levels change. And I think it, they do. They wax and wane throughout our lifetime, throughout our menstrual cycle. There can be things that contribute to it, things like overwork, stress, relationship problems, past sexual abuse. Husbands. Even, um, yeah, right. Even sometimes they're finding um, some women on the pill will experience low libido. And in fact, if you are one of those women, you should seek medical help and try and get off it because that can be permanent. Um, and antidepressants. So, I mean, there are all sorts of things that can affect libido. Um, but one fascinating thing that they're finding right now is that in many women, arousal um, comes first and then desire. So in other words, if I'm not feeling like I really want to have an intimate moment or sex, but I decide like as if I'm eating an ice cream sundae and I'm not hungry, well, maybe I'll take a little bite. Um, and then it tastes good, and then I keep going, and then I desire more, and I might finish it. So that's sort of the model that they're, they're actually finding for most women. So this idea that low desire is a disorder is probably not an accurate way to look at women's sexuality. And in fact, in the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual, the recent one, they removed um, hypoactive sexual desire disorder from the um, manual. And it's now connected with arousal because there's this recognition that that's the way it is for most women. Your film, Orgasm, Inc., in part looks at the medicalization of female sexual dysfunction, how the drug industry has sought to turn this into a disease. Can you explain the notion of medicalization and how it's evolved in the area of female sexual dysfunction? Yeah, I mean, I think going back thousands of years, there's been lots of ideas about how conception occurs, about the meaning of sex and of pleasure. And, and um, you know, back in the Enlightenment period, they actually thought that a woman needed to have an orgasm in order to get pregnant. And if you look at the early medical manuals, they were all about how a husband should be a better lover to, you know, and how to stimulate his partner so that she'll have um, conceive. So, I mean, I think that there's been this long history of sort of medicine theorizing women's sexuality and having all sorts of theories about it. Um, as with that one, many of them have turned out not to be true. Um, and I would say that, you know, in terms of the recent medicalization, I think the real attention has started uh, to, to be paid to it 
because of Viagra. And that's where you saw all these drug companies running to develop a cure and also coming up with a disease category. So the first sort of meetings where female sexual dysfunction was defined were pretty much funded by the drug industry. They were drug industry consultants that put them together, and they were doctors who all had connections to the pharmaceutical industry that came up with the disorder. So it was a very much a pharma-based kind of um, disease. Well, if for no other reason, the approval of Addy is significant because it succeeded where so many other drugs have failed. What's been the history of developing drugs for female sexual dysfunction? I, I take it the problem hasn't been lack of trying. No, no. I mean, in fact, I worked for a drug company um, over 15 years ago that was trying very hard to get something to work. Um, and there have been many drugs that have been in the pipeline, some still are. That and and it sort of started with this idea that the problem was in the genitals. You know, like if we could just get women aroused like men are with Viagra, then everything would be fine. So they tried Viagra on women. They found women did become more engorged. They did become more lubricated, but none of them reported that they felt any better for the most part. Not enough to show any statistical significance. So. After they sort of worked on that area, they moved um, to hormones because they thought, well, it, men seem to have more desire. So men have testosterone. Women have much less. Maybe if we give women more testosterone, they'll all of a sudden have much more sexual desire. And that was a drug called Intrinza, which was a testosterone patch, and there have been others as well that have been in development. Um, and that was the first drug to go before the FDA to make it that far. And um, that drug was not approved. Although and it's available so in Europe, is that right? It was available in Europe very briefly. It was interesting. I went over there. I mean, one of the things about all of these kind of lifestyle disorders um, is that they're really dependent on direct-to-consumer advertising to be very successful because doctors aren't likely to prescribe drugs for things that they really think are serious disorders. But if a patient comes in and starts demanding it, that's often when these drugs get prescribed. And a lot of people self-diagnose because of the advertising. So what happened with Intrinza was that it was not approved in the United States, but it was approved in the EU. But the thing about it is that they don't have direct-to-consumer advertising of pharmaceuticals in the EU. So the sales of it were very, very little. Um, and in fact, Procter & Gamble, who developed that drug, uh, sold sold it off and is not available anymore be because I think the sales were so little and because of the health risks associated with it. So it really ended up not being a blockbuster drug without that direct-to-consumer advertising that needs to go with it. One of the clinical challenges has been how to measure clinical success of a drug for female sexual dysfunction since unlike an erectile dysfunction drug, you're not measuring things like, you're, you're measuring things like satisfying sexual experience rather than an objectifiable, quantifiable factor. How much of a challenge has this been and, and what has been used as a measure of success? Well, I think that that's why this drug got approved and you're bringing up a very good point. I mean, I think that originally the FDA was being very smart in recognizing that um, you needed to show real significant change in order to justify using these kinds of drugs because we're not talking about 
taking candy. Um, we're actually talking about taking things that affect things like hormone levels and dopamine levels and the drug industry, because they want to make a lot of money, they're working on products that women take every single day for the rest of their lives because you make a lot more money out of those types of drugs. I mean, with Viagra, you just make, you know, you just take it when you need it and that's not as profitable. So, you know, I think originally the FDA was doing an excellent job, but recently, I think because of the lobbying that was um, in place that went on around uh, Addy, Originally, it was Flibanserin, but they just changed the name to Addy. Um, they had a, a patient-focused drug uh, hearing where they heard from uh, patients, and a lot of pressure was on them to lower the bar, to make it so that there didn't really have to be much of a statistical significant improvement in order to approve something. So this drug that was approved is giving between 0.5 and 1 satisfying sexual events a month above placebo. So a very, very, very tiny amount above placebo. And satisfying sexual event is very broadly defined. It doesn't mean intercourse. It doesn't mean orgasms necessarily. So, you know, we have this very broad definition. So that has an impact because in the past that wouldn't have been considered enough, but this time they decided it was enough. Um, and I, I think that was part of why it got approved, along with all the pressure on the panel and on the FDA. Um, but it's funny because the difficulty that they've had, the drug industry, in, in getting much of, a, of an improvement is that the placebo has worked very well. Um, and I think that really speaks to the fact that sugar pills, you know, if you believe in them, they can really impact you. But also the fact that this is mostly a condition that is impacted by our lives, by our relationships, by our stress levels, as the, you know, the sort of things I mentioned earlier. And so something like a sugar pill is very effective in that way. You, you mentioned the lobbying effort. Many of the advocates for Addy belong to a coalition called Even the Score. Who is Even the Score? And is there a case to be made that the FDA has somehow neglected an important medical need for women? The organization notes the Agency approved 26 treatments for male sexual dysfunction, but none for women until Addie. Well, that's what the even the score campaign claims. But as the FDA pointed out, and um, I even know this from doing my film, that's actually very inaccurate. There are eight drugs for men. There's um, been some off-label use, and they were including that in their number. Um, and there's no drug for low desire for men. So if you're looking at, you know, everything being totally equitable, there is nothing for men for low desire. Um, and in fact, the FDA has approved two medications for pain syndromes, for vulva pain syndromes, which is what I mentioned earlier, you know, that, um, that basically, um, is part of the idea, the sort of definition of female sexual dysfunction, if one were to say that, um, you know, that falls into that category. And then um, they also very early on, which the FDA even forget forgot to mention um, at the hearing for uh, Addy, they had approved a, a device called the EuroCTD, um, which is basically an overpriced vibrator that sucks that you put on your clitoris and had, you know, very, very strong um statistically significant results um, in improvement. Um, and so that has been approved. So this idea that somehow the FDA was ignoring women was completely inaccurate, one. And in fact, I would say the FDA was doing the right thing by women by protecting them from these sorts of drugs that can 
actually seriously harm you and don't work. And we can get into the ways in which this drug can seriously harm you. Well, critics of the approval have suggested the agency was subject to an unprecedented campaign and and it caved to pressure to approve the drug. Would you argue that was the case? Oh, I think it's undoubtedly the case. This drug had already uh, had not been approved as an SSRI, which it was originally developed for, and had been rejected two other times as well. So there were real serious concerns about this drug. Nothing really changed except for this campaign, and who knows what else went with that. But there was a lot of, you know, we do know that some organizations were taking donations. We know that uh, this campaign was funded by the drug industry. Um, so unfortunately, a lot of women's organizations, even very well-respected women's organizations and consumer organizations were part of this. And I think that that's quite shocking and disturbing that they would push for something like this that can so, you know, clearly harm women. One of the critical functions of the FDA is to balance risk with reward. Uh, a patient with an otherwise untreatable cancer is willing to take far more risk to treat their disease than, say, someone with toenail fungus. Addy was approved with a black box warning, the most serious warning the FDA issues. Critics say it's minimally effective, but could cause side effects that include low blood pressure, fainting, nausea, dizziness, and sleepiness. It shouldn't be used by people who drink, use certain drugs, or have liver disease. How, how should we measure risk versus reward with a drug like this? Well, you know, and I think what those side effects don't mention is that, for instance, at the hearing, because I attended it, it came out that the women on the drug had three times more car accidents because it causes syncope. It causes your blood pressure to drop dramatically and, and um, it causes fainting. So one can assume that's probably what was happening when these women were driving, which is incredibly dangerous. Um, two times more uh, accidents in general, just sort of, um, you know, cuts and things like that. Um, there was uh, congenital anomalies in the fetuses of women who were on this drug. There was uh, breast cancer in the mammary glands of, of rats that they tested it on. Um, and this is a drug that women will be taking every single day for the rest of their lives if they do, you know, what the drug industry would like them to do. Um, and we don't know what the long-term effects of it are. So that black box doesn't even tell the whole story of the risks that are involved in taking it. Um, and, oh, by the way, you're not supposed to drink grapefruit juice on it. Um, so there's sort of all these things that you also have to adjust your lifestyle for. Um, you know, so I think that, that that is something we should be concerned about. Well, Addy is the first FDA-approved drug for female sexual dysfunction, but not likely the last. What does this do now to open the door to competitors? Well, I think what it says is that the bar has been lowered incredibly. You don't really have to show that anything works. Um, and you can get your drug approved just so long as you have enough senators and, and you know, Congress people signing on and you have a campaign. You know, you probably are going to have a, you'll probably get it through. Um, and then you can go and sell your company for a billion dollars, which is what Sprout Pharmaceuticals just did yesterday uh, after they said they cared so much about women and making sure that they're going to have, you know, great sex lives and, and get the health care they deserve. They went and sold it for a billion dollars, the company. So you can see what they were thinking about. Liz Kanner, filmmaker and director of Orgasm Inc., a documentary that traces the industry's quest for a female sexual dysfunction drug, which is available on Netflix streaming, Amazon.com, iTunes, and elsewhere. Liz, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, 
subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.